0: AHOP TV empowers believers with spirit-inspired messages and strategic equipping that accelerates your spiritual growth. You can subscribe to stream weekly content from Awakening House of Prayer, conferences, and other exclusive content to stir your hunger and encourage your heart. Visit us online at ahop.tv. It's an honor to be with you guys this morning. I love my time here. Uh, To be able to be at Awakening House of Prayer to help Apostle Jennifer. Got a lot of love and respect for her and what she's doing in this region and and across the nations of the earth as well. Um, I did bring just a couple of things with me, and uh, I'll I'll tell you about those really, really quickly. In the back, there's just a handful of these books I have back there dealing with the spirit of illegitimacy, the battle over your identity. I'll tell you, back at the most recent presidential election, when the election was over and we knew who was going to be president, I began to see things come out of the church from leaders that I couldn't comprehend with my mind. I couldn't comprehend how we had leaders in the body of Christ that were ridiculing people because they didn't like how the election went. And they were saying derogatory things and they were using words to describe a generation of people. And, and I, I couldn't understand why I was seeing this from leaders in the body of Christ. I really couldn't understand how a political landscape could make us in the body so divided. But I began to ask the Lord what was happening. Because although we, and especially here, you know, here as well, although we talk about Jezebel... Everything is not Jezebel. Everything is not Saul. Everything is not a Delilah spirit. You know, sometimes it's just people being people and, and so on and so forth. But I just felt like there was more to this. And so I began to search the Lord out and ask Him to tell me what was happening because I, I, I didn't understand it. And I had a vision of me and my dad. And in the vision, my dad is a disabled veteran, um, served in the United States Air Force, and all my life, he's been disabled. And uh, he, was ra- he raised us in a way that he was oftentimes more as a coach than anything else. You know, he was constantly telling us what we could do, what we could accomplish. All my life, I was raised with a father that said, there's nothing that I could not accomplish. My father all of my life said, son, no matter what you do, you will achieve greatness because you're my son. Son, no matter what you do and you start it, you will finish it because my son is not a quitter. And, you know, the list goes on and on. That's how I was raised. And in the vision, I'm, I'm seeing that again. And it's something I'm very familiar with. And then all of a sudden, the vision changes And there's a father talking to a young child, and I don't know either one, but the father's telling the child what a disappointment it is and how he's a disgrace to the father and how the father's so disappointed in him and he can't do anything right and, you know, all this kind of ridiculing of it. And I, in the vision, kind of screamed out to God what was going on, what's happening. And the Lord spoke to me and said, you're seeing how the modern church is speaking into a generation. And I said, well, what's happening behind this? And the Lord said, for, for a long time now, there's been a spirit of illegitimacy. But it's ramped up in recent years, and the church has embraced it. Because many in congregations don't really want to see sons and daughters equipped. They just want servants. And so, uh, you know, in this process, the Lord took me on this journey, showed me where there was someone in the Bible who was born illegitimate in the natural, and how it it transpires on into Christ, and how it transpires on to you and I. The enemy wants to keep you illegitimate. Coming to church does not phase the enemy. Calling yourself a Christian doesn't doesn't do anything to the enemy. You know. Never missing a service, singing on the praise team, all that stuff, that doesn't, doesn't phase the enemy. What phases the enemy is when you know who you truly are as a son, an heir, and an ambassador. And so that book, I wrote that and, and published it. It is less than 100 pages because my editor at the time said, whatever you do, keep it underneath 100 pages. And I'm like, why? And the average male between 25 and 55 never reads anything over 100 pages. I thought that was kind of comical. I thought, yeah, that's whatever. But I took the advice of the editor. You wouldn't believe how many times I've made that announcement, and I've had men come up to me and said, had you not told me it was less than 100 pages, I'd have never bought it. So obviously it's true. Nevertheless, that's back there for $10. Um I brought two different shirts with me. One, and you can see some of the people. We got some good looking models out here today. You saw the drummer wearing this shirt. The kingdom, keys to the kingdom, unlocking her destiny. Really quickly, how that came to be. Had a vision. The Lord showed me a set of keys. He said, what will the keys do for you? I thought I had the answer. And I said, it will open doors. And the Lord rebuked me. And he began to show me how keys have never opened doors. Keys have only unlocked doors. You open a door by pushing or pulling. So the, the Lord began to share with me on this vision how people have been unlocking doors, but they're standing there with the door closed because they're not exercising their authority to open or push and so on and so forth. So we got those shirts back there, and I brought my latest one, and it says, kingdom is family, and then underneath it, it says, kingdom is greater than culture. I got in the habit, and we put these in military green, kind of a kickback tribute to not only my father serving in the military, even though he was Air Force, I I have a huge heart for all military personnel. If you're an anti-military person, best thing you do is not have a conversation with me because you'll get the spirit of Ryan. (laughs) I love our men and women that served in all branches of the military, and I have a huge heart for it. Uh, I have a lot of relatives that served and stuff. But, you know, growing up the son of a disabled veteran and carrying my dad to the VA multiple times and still carry him to the VA a lot of times and sitting at VA hospitals for 12 hours at a time, you know, it, it, my heart is dedicated to the men and women serving this nation. So I wanted to attribute that. But I got in a habit of saying kingdom is family, kingdom is family. And I, I, just, I just started saying that. I just started... You know, people, you'll do something for somebody and somebody say, oh, thank you, this and that. And I say, hey, kingdom is family. And one day I was called a racist by a white guy. And he proceeded to tell me how I was a racist because I felt like that a young man needed to be corrected in what he was doing. And this guy called me a racist and said, the problem with you white prophets is you don't understand culture and at the time he said it i kind of it did ruffle my feathers i'll be honest with you because one of the things being from alabama one of the things that i have fought hard against is racism i grew up with the ku klux klan taking up offering at the four-way crossing on saturdays just like the volunteer fire department true stories but i've spent years fighting against racism because my dad wouldn't allow us to be racist One of the first things I ever did in ministries, I preached on the back of a, a flatbed pickup truck at a baseball field in Selma, Alabama, in 1997. And believe it or not, in 1997, in Selma, Alabama, was the first time there was ever an outdoor event that consisted of white and blacks united together. I've preached in the church that Martin Luther King Jr. preached at or pastored in Birmingham, Alabama. I've been on a part of a lot of things that are just crazy to overcome racism. So when this white guy called me a racist, there was a little bit of Spirit of rhyme rise up. But I had to settle the Spirit of rhyme, And I had to think about what he was saying. And it dawned on me. You will never truly embrace that kingdom is family as long as you value the culture greater than the kingdom. When you study the Word of God, Jesus never allowed the culture to dictate His circumstances. Actually, if you study the Gospels, you'll realize that part of Jesus' assignment was to transform culture. That's what He did, and that's what we're called to do. We can't allow culture to be greater than the kingdom. But as long as you view the culture greater, you'll never truly embrace the kingdom as family because you'll view certain people as enemies, and you'll view certain people that they'll never be a true brother and sister in Christ because you think your culture means more than the actual kingdom. The kingdom is about transformation. So that's what that shirt's back there for. Listen, shirts are 20 apiece. The book is $10 a piece. I'm not saying you got to buy everything, but I'm saying you should buy everything. Thank you, bro. I'm saying help a brother out. <laughs> I'm not saying that. The Lord will increase your blessing. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. But I kind of feel like he will bless you, (laughs) you know. Um, But seriously, our our product, just so you know, our product goes twofold. One, it goes back to help our family. I've been married for over 22 years now to my high school sweetheart. Aww we got four children and we don't have a secure income at all I'm not giving you a pity party I'm giving you truth we live a hundred percent by faith a hundred percent by faith so the product doesn't come free I have to pay for the product and then you know it is marked up a little bit to make a little bit to go back to one to help help the family Believe it or not, everywhere you go, you don't get love offerings. Sometimes love offerings are weak, and you, you lose money because of travel expenses and stuff. The other side of it is our product helps keep the ministry running as far as being able to order more product, order, uh, I mean, be able to pay for fuel. Go, you go to some places, and they don't pay for a hotel room. You got to pay for a hotel room and stuff and everything. I'm not this guy that refused to go to places because they don't have a 1,000 people. I'm not that guy. I'll go to the place that has 10 people in the living room. You know, and if I got to go to the place that has 10 people in the living room, I know that I'm probably going to lose financially. But it is why we do what we do because we're called to awaken the nations with a prophetic call of rising ecclesia. <laughs> Which means we have to do some things sometimes that are a little challenging. And so, you know, I, I, I try to be honest with people. We're not making, you know, a ton of money off product, but you need to know where our money's going or your money's going when you buy that. So, if you're buying a shirt or buying a book, whatever it is, you're not just giving us the lifestyles of the rich and famous. You know, it's, it's just not that way for us. So, I, I want to be honest, want to be up real up front with that and everything, so everybody gets it. Everybody understand that? Amen. We can take cash. We can take check. If you write a check, R J M. Um, we can take a debit card as well or a credit card. I always say it no matter what, because I want to make sure million is spelled M I L L. There's two L's, not one. So uh, <laughs> Amen. Y'all y'all need to recognize if if you if you be around me long enough, one of the things that I love to do is laugh. Life is too short not to laugh. It is it is crazy to live bitter, angry and mad at the world. I had a grandmother that was a hypochondriac and she was angry at everybody and anything that moved to breathe. And all my life she was a miserable human being. And it's sad that you would live your life that way. But I remember going to her house as a kid, and and you you literally didn't stay no longer than 10 to 20 minutes because as soon as you got there, she was ready for you to leave. She was just sad. You know what I'm saying? She was a sad individual. She If you had a headache, 10 minutes later, she had one that was 10 times worse. If you had a back problem, she was having surgery within a week to up your back problem, you know. She was a true hypochondriac, and I watched her life, and and one time, my family and I, we were, this was many years ago, we were vacationing in in, uh, Panama City, and we had just been there two days. We had had a condo rented for a full week, I think nine days, sorry, nine days, and we'd just been there, deposited all this money and stuff. I get the phone call. My grandmother passed away, so we talked with my parents. It was my mother's mom, and I was like, look, we've already paid for this place and stuff and everything, and I said... If it's okay with you, I'm going to leave Christy and the kids here. I'm going to get up and drive and go be a part of the funeral, and then I'm going to come back because I don't want to just throw away the money that we lost and everything. They agreed it was okay, so I had to speak at the funeral. And I'm like, "What do you say? What do you say to something or someone that has been miserable their whole life? You know, what do you do?" So I drove the six-hour drive from Panama City back home, and and I'm just I'm just I'm in a little bit of a panic mode because it's not like you can get up and go, oh, she was such a loving person. Because she wasn't. You know? I mean, it's not that she didn't love family. You know that she loved family, but she wasn't a loving person. So, you know, what do you say? What do you do? This, that, and everything. And I'm just warring over this, and I'm driving back, and I'm like, oh, God, if there was ever a time, (laughs) I need you now and quite possibly the rapture would be a good idea right now. <laughs> so I get to the funeral home, and I'm like, oh God, what am I going to say then? And right before I go to the pulpit, the Lord just downloads something to me. And I never once addressed my grandmother, not one single time. I never even acknowledged her. Now she's laying you know, right in the casket below the pulpit. I never even acknowledged her. What I instead talked about was how precious life was and how we got to learn to appreciate life and not live miserable. And life is too short. And even if you live to be 88 years old, it goes by so quick. And so I taught, and that's what I talked about. And the pastor of the church got up behind me and my grandmother didn't go to church a lot. She probably went once every three months, if that. And he got up and he talked about her coming into church every week with a big smile on her face. And I thought, he don't even know who's there. (laughs) Because all my life, I've never even seen her smile. Not even in pictures. But it's a shame that that's the way you live and that's the way you exit. I'm saying this because there was a time in my life when, when I was a lot younger, I went through a very dark process of life. Where even at a young age, I was introduced to alcohol and speed and it, it, you know, it kind of derailed things. And I went through a severe depression and was very suicidal for a number of years and thankfully failed at suicide attempts. But after I was born again, I still had to work on some things. I was already married at the time. And but I'll be honest with you, I didn't realize that I loved my wife. I really lusted my wife. And one particular morning, I got up and all of a sudden I looked in the mirror and I'd been born again by this time two years. And I looked in the mirror for the first time ever in my life and I didn't hate what I saw. And I said, God, why? What's happening to me? You know, I'm sitting looking in the mirror and I'm I'm overwhelmed with this emotion. All of a sudden, tears are coming down. I'd never been a crier. Now that's all I do. But at the time, I'd never been a crier. And tears start coming down, and I'm like, God, what's wrong with me? And the Lord spoke to me and He said, You're seeing yourself how I see you. And I said, What what do you mean? And He said, You're seeing that you're loved. And at the time, the house that we had built, it didn't have like a, a bathroom in the, you know, kind of joined to the bedroom. It was a little bit of a hallway. But if you opened the bedroom door, you could see in through the mirror of the bathroom. And I could see my wife asleep. And all of a sudden, I mean, I was overwhelmed with this emotional. Rush that I've known now to be love. And I remember looking at her and she was asleep in the bed and I went, oh my gosh, I love that woman. And the Lord said, now you can actually love her because you love you. Now, all that to get to the point where I say, now, because I went through the depressions, I went through the suicide, I went through the drinking, the pills and all that other stuff, even my experience with my grandmother and so on and so forth, I've learned the value of laughing. I've learned the value of not letting things always bog you down. Everybody's going to have bad days, bad moments, and bad experiences. But life is too short not to learn how to laugh. Now, I've developed that to saying that life is too short not to laugh, so find someone to laugh at. Laugh at the expense of others. When you learn how to laugh at the expense of others, you'll also learn how to laugh at yourself. So sometimes, even in the worst time, you got to go to YouTube and type in people falling. (laughs) I don't know why that cracks me up, but people falling gets me every single time. Especially when people take those stumble tail step, you know, how they're trying to balance this up. I'm gone. I'm laughing. I'm sorry. It's horrible. I know. And if you fall, I will check on you to make sure that you are okay. But no, I'm doing it as I am laughing. <laughs> I can't help it. It is funny. And you gotta learn how to laugh. I'm, because here's one of the things. I meet these people and they're, 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 you know, I'm a Christian and, you know, and I'm like you're supposed to have the joy of the Lord. You know, and they're trying to be happy. But you know, truthfully, biblically there's nothing evidence-wise about being quote-unquote happy, but there's everything about being joyful and having the joy of the Lord. And sometimes you if you can learn how to laugh, you'll laugh at yourself sometimes standing there doing nothing and people's like, "What is wrong with you?" And all of a sudden a spirit of laughter hits you. You no, know, the Bible says that laughter's like a medicine. It's good to laugh. So it'll be all right if y'all laugh a little bit this morning in the process. <laughs> Matthew 25. Long introduction, right? <laughs> I told a little bit last night that I've been in a unique season in my life. I've been in this process where I've been a little bit frustrated at the apostolic and prophetic movement of the modern-day American church. And at the same time of being frustrated, I found myself weeping a lot. But even in this process, I've noticed a lot of transitioning in myself. Being in prophetic ministry, there was years where I loved flowing in words of knowledge and you know, prophesying into people and operating out of the gift of prophecy and stuff, and I loved that stuff. But I've seen the Lord in the past year really pull the reins on that from me personally. I've, I've come to realize for me personally, a lot of it is because I refuse to perform. I refuse to go into a place and people treat me like a puppet and just want me to spew out these words. I'm not a performer. I'm not going to do that. You can't put... A quarter in me and do a vending machine selection and get whatever prophetic words you want to get. That's not the way that I roll. I'm very strict when it comes to prophetic ministry. If you're around me, of course, Apostle Jennifer knows this, but I'm, it's, I I don't, there's no gray line when it comes to this stuff. A lot of stuff that we're seeing in prophetic ministry is hogwash. Some of it is is just, you know, there was a time that words of knowledge were very, very impressive. And I'm going to be honest with you personally, myself, it doesn't really impress me that much anymore. And it's no discredit to words of knowledge in that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, I'm sitting in here looking and going, how's this truly bringing people up out of the miry clay and molding them into the identity of Christ? Because there's a lot of things that we can say, but there's a lot of manipulation that happens in the prophetic. We, we've got to the point where we go to these places and we want people to call out our names. We want them to call out our, our spouse name, our children's name, our children's ages and stuff. And, and then we go, woo, you know, and because they called out and they didn't know those things. One of the problems, though, that is happening, believe it or not, this is happening, and it's not always, so do not run out of here saying said it was always, I'm just giving you some real-life evidences of some things that are happening. If you go to a big conference and say the big conference is, you know, it's what, you know, the conference is called conviction, okay? And so it's hashtag conviction, conviction 18, you know, that's that's the word, or 19, sorry, we're in 2019. So it's it's that word. And so everybody that attends, they usually make a post, they check in and say, hey, we're here, hashtag, you know, they do the conference name, so on and so forth. What a lot of these deceivers are doing in the prophetic is they go and they hashtag that word. Well, when they do that, it brings up everybody that's used that word. And then I can click on your name And guess what? I can go on your Twitter or your Facebook and stuff, and before long, I can figure out who you're married to, how old your kids are, and how many kids you have. Why? You're posting the information. It's very easy to be manipulative in the prophetic now. And it's the reason, I'm not saying it's wrong every time. Please understand my heart when I'm saying this. I'm not saying it's wrong every time. I'm just saying that there's some manipulation that's happening. And you can't get overly impressed with those kind of things when it doesn't actually bring about maturity, development, and growth in your life. If all they ever do is call out your name, your children's name, and so on and so forth, you know, it's kind of hogwash. So I got a phone call the other day from a friend, and he goes, hey, I need to ask you this question. He goes, we were so-and-so, and and he said this well-known person, and I do know the person, um, gets up and he calls out a unique name. A very, very unique name. Uh, I mean, it's like a 1800s kind of name. And he goes, you know, you're thinking you're in a room of 500 people. Who's got that name? And sure enough, this guy in the back raises his hand and says, hey, you know, that's my name. So he kind of comes halfway, and the, and the person speaking goes, okay, this is your name, and he goes, I see this number, and he rattles off numbers, and it's that guy's cell phone number. Well, then he tells the guy, he goes, listen, he goes, I see you opening up churches in different nations, and I see your ministry expanding internationally and stuff, Everything. everybody's like, oh, wow, woo. So my friend said, there was a lot of different hotels we could have chosen in the region, but we chose, we actually called them and said, which one do you prefer us to stay at? They told us one. He said, we made a decision to stay at another one. And he said, lo and behold, we go down for breakfast, and he goes, the guy that answered in the service is sitting down there at breakfast. So he's like, whoa. So he goes up to him and says, man, that was crazy about that word last night, right? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, man, I mean, that's just ridiculous. He goes, well, why did you come here, you know, to this, to this location? And he goes, oh, I've known the guy that called him out that was speaking. He said, I've known him for years. About that time, the host comes down to the hotel, shot to see my friend and said, let's have breakfast. So they're having breakfast thing. This The guest speaker comes rolling in and sits down at the table that he called the guy out. And so he's seeing them having a conversation. He goes, Well, maybe he's just, you know, because they had that word last night. They're just kind of talking. They're, you know, they're kind of moving and so on and so forth. So he's thinking about that. And so they get up to leave, and that guest speaker motions for them to come over here. So they come over there, and the guest speaker looks at this other guy and says, I want to introduce you to so and so. He's one of our pastors. And we're ordaining him and commissioning him to open these churches in these different nations. So my friend called me all confused. And he goes, what in the world? And I'm saying, brother, it's happening more than you can imagine. And it's happening because we are a generation now that is longing for something that we're not willing to invest in ourselves. I am not against the prophetic. I am not against words of knowledge. I am for it 110%. I'm, I'm absolutely for it. But there needs to be the righteousness of Christ that is attached to it. And if I or anyone else was to say something and it completely goes in error to the Word of God, you can't hang your hat on that. Because the Word of God should not be overwritten because of the Word of a man. But what's happening a lot of times is we're so enamored with individuals that have charisma, they have flair, they have zeal. And so what we start saying is, I want what they have, if they can just impart into me. That's a hot topic word, impartation. Now, I believe in impartation. I believe there's things that you can definitely impart into people, but true biblical impartation is actually going to happen through the investment of time in relationship. You, you, you may want something from me, for example, but I cannot truly impart anything that is of me unless you and I have the investment of time. Now, do we lay hands on and have impartations? Yes. Yes. Because there can be like a spiritual importation of the gift of prophecy. There can be the spiritual importation of, you know, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There can be the spiritual importation of evangelism and stuff. But it's gotten so reckless because now I'm hearing all these people not only talking about importation, they're talking about mantles. You know, I'm going to get the mantle of A.A. Allen, or I'm going to get the mantle of Oral Roberts, or I'm going to get the mantle of Billy Graham and stuff. And I'm like, first of all, if they're dead... And they've been dead for a number of years. How can you get their mantle? Now, I know that we go back to Elisha, Elisha's bones sitting back and he was dead and nobody got the mantle and stuff. But we're talking about a generation of leaders who knew how to pass on mantles. Leonard Ravenhill is one of my favorite, all-time favorite ministers of all time. Huge Leonard Ravenhill fan. But it's evident and we know now that Leonard, before he passed away, passed his mantle onto Steve Hill. And not long, just a couple of weeks after Leonard Ravenhill passes, I mean, a couple of months after Leonard Ravenhill passes away, Brownsville Revival explodes under Steve Hill. You know, as a guest speaker there on Father's Day, and Brownsville takes off and everything's going. But listen, I would be a fool to say, I'm getting Leonard Ravenhill's mantle. Now, I can get a type of mantle in which he carried, for say, evangelism. You can get an evangelistic mantle, but I can't get the mantle in which he carried. But what's happening is, is now we're getting into this marketing ploy of this because we don't want to dive down and invest in ourselves. We just want somebody to come lay hands on us, and bam, we got it and we run on. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. "...who took their lamps went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their, get their lamps." And the foolish said to the prudent, "'Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out.' But the prudent answered, "'No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves.' And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, a very familiar passage of Scripture. King James, New King James, instead of using the word prudent, in this translation, which is New American Standard, they use wise. So if you've ever heard the terminology, the ten, the parable of the five wise versions and the five foolish versions. Very famous passage of Scripture that's often preached talking about like an end-time message. And there's principles of that that is absolutely true, but nobody panic. We're not going to talk about on an end-time message. I want to talk about specifically the wise and the foolish, It's interesting that the Bible gives us this understanding that they were to put oil in their lamps and they were to tarry to wait for the bridegroom, the calling of the bridegroom. And when the call came at midnight that the bridegroom was coming, the five foolish virgins who realized that they did not have enough oil looked at the five wise virgins and said, give us some of what you have. And the five wise said, we can't do that because if I give you what is mine, then that means I may not have what I need to carry me through. Then the five wise version says something very, very interesting. Tells the five foolish, go and purchase your oil. Then the Scripture says the five foolish went to purchase the oil. And when they went and purchased the oil, the bridegroom came and they missed the bridegroom. Now, we've used that in end-time theology, and I'm not discrediting that. I'm saying great Scripture for end-time theology and principles and applications. But let's understand something. The five foolish virgins, they're responsible for the maintaining of the oil themselves for themselves. But when it came at an hour that they were unprepared, they were not willing to go get their oil. How do we know that? The Scripture says, they looked at the wise ones and said, give me what you have. Then the wise says, go buy the oil, then they go buy it. Here's the thing. The five foolish virgins knew where to go purchase the oil the entire time. But because they didn't want to pay the cost of oil, they looked at those that had already paid the price and said, give me what you have because I'm not willing to pay the price, but you've paid the price. I want your oil. And this is where we're at in many congregations across America now because... We're a generation that is conference driven. We go to the conferences and we get in line for the guest speakers and we want the guest speakers to come and lay hands on us and impart into us and give us their oil because we're not willing to pay the cost of our own oil. What makes them foolish is that they knew where the oil was at the entire time, but they weren't willing to pay for it. And this is where we're at in this generation because we don't want to pay the price. You know, I mean, you've probably heard stories, but there's, I mean, there's stories like, you know, my own experiences, I've had people come up and they say, oh, I just want what you have. I just want, I just want you to have, and just pray for me that I'll have what you have. And I'm like, okay, Lord, send an L5, uh, L5 tornado to destroy their home and lose everything they got. And overnight they lose $60,000. Lord, let them drive 19 year old vehicles that are breaking down. Lord, let them live by faith. And they're like, oh, no, oh, no, you can't pray those things but that's the price I'm paying that's the price I'm paying to maintain the oil of Holy Spirit into my life you're wanting to rob from me because you're not willing to pay the cost we're a generation of whoremongers liars and thieves we really are Because we see this, you know, you you know, Apostle Jennifer, she's like telling y'all, you gotta be intercessors. You gotta pray. You gotta war. You gotta do this. But when it comes time for you to war and you to pray to intercede, you often, not everybody, I'm just saying, I'm giving an example. Nobody panic. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm giving you a hypothetical statement. But a lot of times what will happen, instead of us paying the cost of intercession, we call somebody else and say, can you do it for me? They weren't willing to pay the price. Part of this transitioning the Lord has really had me in is really trying to understand spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Because right now, it's a joke. I know firsthand of an experience where a spiritual father and a spiritual son had a, had a pretty good falling away. You're not always going to agree with everybody 100% of the time. And there was a good little riff there. And so a little bit of time passed, and, and the question was proposed to the spiritual father. Is there any hope that the spiritual son might be redeemed or that there might be reconciliation? The spiritual father said this, I'm not sure... But I know this, it will never happen with me. I'm sitting here going, what kind of father would say that about a son? Now, I know we're quick to to go to the prodigal son. Well, the the father had to let the prodigal son go. Correct. The father had to let the prodigal son go. There comes a time, sometimes you had to let either a spiritual son, spiritual daughter, or a biological son or daughter, sometimes you got to let them go and make their mistakes. I get all that. But the lesson is that the father never takes his eyes off the road. Where's the generation of leaders that refuse to take off their eyes off the road? But we're a generation that we just we get frustrated with sons and daughters, and we get mad and upset, and so we cut the relationship off. We disown them, disavow them, block them, delete them, do all this stuff, and then we run and tell all these people, you know, stay away from these people and this, and we trade sons and daughters like they're Pokemon cards. Well, stay away from this one because this one disappointed me. Stay away from this one because this one made me mad, and this one sent me this. And I'm sitting here going, here's the problem. As fathers, you don't want to make the investment. You don't want to make the... You don't want to pay the price that it takes to invest in somebody's life. Anything that has a cost is an investment. Even if you go to the restaurant today and you pay a meal, it's an investment to your body. Whether good or bad, it's an investment. You paid the cost of a meal. So whatever you're doing, it is an investment of one way or your life. So we have to understand what's, as we are individuals, as great as it is to have mantles passed upon us or impartation upon us or to be a spiritual son or to be a spiritual father to somebody, the question is, are we willing to pay the cost and the price of the investment? Because it's so much easier just to go to a place, sit down and say, feed me. Feed me. I'm not praying. I'm not reading. I'm not worshiping but I'm expecting God to talk to you about me. And then when we go to these places and there's a word that we don't like, (laughs) we're quick to disavow it and say it's not a part of this or it's not a part of that. A lot of the things that are happening with me personally is I see myself more transitioning into governmental and, and regional type words and stuff and everything. And I'm I'm seeing that even in the broader spectrum of things, people don't want to pay the cost of the oil for regions and nations. They want God to zap it and zip it and, you know, just, you know, pew, pew, pew. And all of a sudden revival is birth. That's why, listen, shameless plug. If you're not here Friday night with Lou Engle, Lou Ingle will be here Friday night, and you're talking about somebody that is paying the cost for oil for awakening and revival. And you can cry out, you're for a revival, we're for a revival, but if you don't position yourself to purchase the oil. This is the thing about the five foolish virgins. Go back again. When the five wives tell them to go, they knew where to go the whole time. And I'm telling you, you know a lot of this, how to get your oil. But are you willing to pay the price? Sometimes that's through prayer. Sometimes that's through fasting. Sometimes that's through worship. Sometimes that's through words. Sometimes that's through time. You go and you sit beside somebody. And you invest into their life as they invest into your life. It's not about always having somebody lay hands on you. As great as it is to have somebody to lay hands on you, you can also lay hands on yourself. It's, it, it is. I never want to discredit the value or the anointing that another individual carries. I mean, for example, we, we can whether you like him or not is irrelevant. But it's evident that Benny Hinn has an anointing for healing. Now, let me say this, because here's what happens. Because we get hung up on the mantles and impartations, we also believe that certain people have a greater anointing than us for certain things. Let me say this about anointing. Anointing is the anointing. It's across the board. There can be an increase in one's life for a gift, but it doesn't mean that they're more anointed than you are. You may feel like Benny Hinn has a greater anointing for healing, but listen, what is healing? It's one of the gifts. It's one of the nine gifts. So you can have an increased measure of healing, but it doesn't mean that you have a greater anointing for healing than everybody else. Why? Because the anointing doesn't come from what you can... The anointing comes from the throne. The anointing is, is is heaven invading you. The anointing of the Lord is for the increase and the power and the measure, but it doesn't make you greater because, oh, he's more anointed or she's more anointed or not. No, 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 they may have an increased measure of something. Okay, so... To, to explain so we all understand. How many knows the Bible says that, uh, it is given unto man a measure of faith? Everybody, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about that. When you study that word out, what that literally means is that you have enough faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans 1 tells us that there's not a generation that will ever be able to look around and, and not be able to see, see the earth, see the sky, see the trees, and not know that there is a God. So every man is given a measure of faith. But how many knows that there's times in your life that you need more faith than that little measure? Yes. So there has to be an increase of faith somehow. Well, where does increase come from? Go back to the gifts. You have healing, miracles, but you also have the gift of faith. Now all of a sudden you can have an increase of faith based on the Holy Spirit Increase in that measure. It doesn't mean because you walk around with an increased measure of faith and this person walks around with an increased measure of of healing, it doesn't mean that your anointing of faith is greater than their anointing of faith. Your anointing is the anointing. It's why you can take somebody like... um, um, um just <sighs> Benny Hinn, and you just go to Benny Hinn, and and you go, oh gosh, his anointing is so great. He can do this. It's why the anointing can hit a drunkard in an alley, and a drunkard lay hands on somebody, all of a sudden, be sober, the Spirit of the Lord hit them, and they lay hands and something happened, because the anointing anointing is the anointing. It, that's why it baffles our brain because we look at people who's been preaching for 25 years, look at this one that's been saved for two months, all of a sudden the one that's been saved for two months is doing radical things, and the guy has been saved for 25 years and preaching ain't doing so much, and we go, oh gosh, their anointing is less than their anointing. No, 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 no. The anointing is the anointing. That's why Jesus could take a bunch of fishermen and make them into fishers of men. The anointing at the end of the day is the anointing. There can be increased in gifts. And so one person, if you know somebody really flows in the gift of healing, you're going to go to that person to say, hey, if my body's sick and this and everything, I need the gift of healing. Or if somebody really operates in miracles or they operate, you know, whatever the case may be, they can have an increased measure of something. How many gifts of the Holy Spirit are there? That means you can flow in one and flow out of it and flow in another and flow out of it and flow in another and flow out of it and flow in another. But you will find this for a fact that even though you might flow in and out of one of each of the nine gifts, there will always be one or two, maybe three, that will be an increased measure upon your life. It's why some people, they have the ability. You ever heard somebody get up and speak in tongues and there be an interpretation? Y'all ever seen that before? You know, you're sitting there and you're like, oh, God, let me have the interpretation. But it's like this, this, these, there'll be a handful of people in the room. They get the interpretation no matter what. You know, it's like, what in the world? They have an increase for the gift interpretation in that moment. But where we're getting hung up is we're drawn to the gifts because we're not being drawn to the anointing. Again, when you have the gift of prophecy, we're drawn to the gift of prophecy, but we're not drawn to the anointing. Because the anointing comes with a cost. You don't just wake up and say, oh Lord, zap me. I got to be this and I got to do this and make this happen. If you spend more time on social media than in the Word, don't be surprised when the anointing is not great in your life. We're drawn to the giftings and we're missing the cost of the oil because we've got a little bit of oil in our life and we're saying, oh God, let me maintain this oil. And then there comes a time when you've got to do something and you're like, I don't have enough oil. Give me your oil. Hey, Jennifer, I need your oil. Apostle Stidham, I need your oil. Lou, man, Lou, if you could lay your hands on me and impart that kind of prayer, I would pray like you. And I'm thinking, you don't know the hours that Lou Engle has sat in a cabin by himself going, Lord. Oh, wait a minute. You mean I've got to invest time? i got to go through this purging? i got to pay the cost of the pressure of the oil? i got to be able to do this stuff to be able to get to this point to where I was at? I don't want that stuff. Just lay hands on me and pardon me. You are a thief. And that's where we're at right now. And it's a problem. It's a massive problem because that's not the identity that you're called to walk in. You're called to pay the price. You're called to put your feet to the ground. You're called to go to the threshing floor. You're called at times for the separation of wheat and tares. You're called at times where the Lord will break you, shatter you, throw you into a fiery furnace, and pull you out as a lump of clay. You're called for the seasons of your life where everything's not going to seem like it's going your way and seems like all hell's breaking loose, but really what it is is the Lord is pressing you to get more oil from you. The oil from the olive trees, do you know when the oil is at its purest form? Not when it drains and not when it's filled in bottles. The moment that the olive is pressed, the oil, if you like if you had if you went to an oil pressing place, and the moment that the olive is pressed, if you took your finger and took that, the oil would have a different taste at that moment than it would seconds away from where it was being bottled. Because at the moment that it's at its purest form is at the moment of its pressing. But we don't like to be pressed. You mean I can't just show up and get it? You mean I can't just show up and, and, and it just miraculously happened to me? You mean I can't get somebody just lay hands on me? You think about the fact of the disciples... And Jesus tells them right out of the gate, I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? Three to three and a half years later, he breathes on them. But think what had just happened before he breathed on them. The price that they had to pay. The times that they failed. You know, there was times the disciples went out, they laid hands on the sick to see them healed and, and the dead raised and stuff, and they fell flat on their face. They had to come back with their heads hanging low because they failed. And Jesus told them then, some things aren't going to happen unless you pray and fast. There's a price to the oil. Think about the moment that the disciples and Jesus is arrested. Think about the moment that Simon Peter is sitting in the crowd and all of a sudden a young girl looks at him and says, hey, aren't you one of them? you got to look at the Scripture. Peter not said anything yet. She simply looked at him and said, aren't you one of them? So he moves to another part of the crowd. As Jesus is standing before the crowd, he's already been arrested this time. And another person looks at him and says, hey, aren't you one of them? And then there's a third time that comes, and Peter had said something. And the person said, you talk like them. Now, there's some keys to this. So back up. Judas goes to um, the Pharisees. And he says to the Pharisees, he goes, you know, how much do you give me to betray him? So they told him. 30 pieces of silver, betray him. So he goes, okay, follow me. I know where he's at. He will be the one in whom I kiss. Let me ask this question. Would they had not known who Jesus was by this time? Seems like it, right? I mean, he's kind of created a little bit of a reputation by this point in his life. I mean, first of all, not many days prior to the garden scene, he came in riding a donkey. A bunch of people had a bunch of leaves, palm leaves, and they were singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. That will draw attention to yourself. Now Peter's having to pick him out by a kiss. I mean, Judas. Why did Judas have to kiss him? And why did the two people automatically know Peter was with them? And then the talking is another key. Here's what we know historically. This is not biblically, this is historically, so just stay with me just for a second. History tells us that by that time, the disciples had spent so much time with Jesus that they began to physically take on the identity of Christ. Their hair had grown long, their beards had come out, and you had a group of 12 plus Jesus that now not only talked like Him, but looked like Him. When Judas says, we had to go and I'll kiss Him, it's to point out which one He is. Because if you go there and there's 11 other people there that look like Jesus, which one is He? Then when Peter's in the crowd and Jesus is before the people, and He's sitting there, and a little girl looks at Peter, looks at Jesus, looks at Peter, looks at Jesus... Hey, aren't you one of them? No. Then it happens again. And the third time, he talked like him. I'm saying all that because here's where we're at. When you become a generation that is driven by importation and the passing of mantles, I'm not against that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But when you're not willing to pay the cost for your oil, you fail to take on the identity and the vocabulary of the one who is pressing. When people can't see Jesus, but they see a brand. See, one of the things, I know people mean it well, but one of the things that drives me up the wall, makes me cringe, is when people come up to you and they go, Oh, I loved, I loved your message. You know who you remind me of? And then they say somebody famous. And I know they're meaning well, but it's, it's like a, a screw tightening In your body. Because you're going, you're missing it. If you're identifying somebody, or I'm missing it, if I can, I automatically remind you of somebody else, but we're not seeing the identity of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, we're totally missing it. we got to be drawn back to His presence. In His presence, there's the anointing, there's the pressing, there's the price, there's the cost. But that's where it hurts. That's the process of where it hurts. Now, I can't take credit for this. Uh, Dr. Mark Barclay, I was with him a few weeks ago, and he actually preached this scripture, but he preached it on end-time events and stuff. He was talking about heaven and hell and stuff and everything. And, and when, he, when he opened up the scripture, all of a sudden I got this realization that that's where we're at. We're robbing from people because we don't want to pay the price. But then Dr. Mark Barclay said something. And it astounded me because he said, do you know what the problem with Judas was? And I've never thought about this. He said he was carrying on two different conversations. Okay. He goes, when he was with the disciples, he's carrying on the conversations with the disciples. But when he started going to the Pharisees, he started carrying conversation on with the Pharisees. When he's with the disciples, yay, Jesus. When he's with the Pharisees, boo, Jesus. And he carried on two different conversations. Now, one of the things that we have to think about with Judas is, we want to think automatically that Satan used Judas. Let me ask this question. When did Satan enter Jesus's body? It was after the betrayal. Judas betrayed Jesus because of Judas. He saw monetary gain. Because he wasn't willing to pay the cost of a disciple, he found a way to enrich himself through betrayal. You know what's fascinating about Judas? Judas repented. After he handed Jesus over, he went back to the Pharisees, gave them back their money and said, I'm sorry for whatever I did. Judas repented. The problem is he repented with the people that he sinned with and not the one he sinned against. When you're not willing to pay the price and the cost of oil, you'll always repent with the ones you sin with, but not the one you sin against. Oil has a cost. It hurts at times. It's pressure at times, but it has a cost. Now, here's the honest, goodest truth. There is nothing I can do to help you get the oil. I can be like the five wise virgins and point you into the right direction, but unless you do what is required, there's nothing I can do. I'm saying that because at this point, especially, you know, and this is the second time I've been here and the Lord has restricted me from laying hands on people and it's frustrating because I do love laying hands on people. But at the same time, I think the Lord is is trying to use me as a sifter, which means sometimes we just got to shake things up. There's a price of oil that you got to pay. And the only way that you're going to pay the cost is you've got to learn how to get back to the place where you know where to pay the price. I don't know necessarily what that looks like for you. Now, this morning, we're going to try to go into a little bit about it or whatever, it's not really morning anymore, afternoon. We're going to go into a little bit of time of prayer. So if you can come up and just play the piano. But here's, here's what, what you need to understand. It won't be a quick resolution. We're going to go into a time of prayer. I'm not going to lay hands on you. I'm not going to impart anything into you. We're not going to pass any mantles. We're going to go into a moment of pressing. Which means for some of you, That's going to require repentance. Some of you may need to recognize that you've been a robber or a thief. You've been trying to live off the oil of others. And it happens. Sometimes it happens so inconspicuous sometimes. You know, just like before you even know it, you're living off what other people are doing. And you're not really living off the anointing yourself. We're so drawn to the gifting that we don't pay the price for the anointing. It's so important that you get this because I can lay hands on so many people, but if you lay hands on somebody, you lay hands on somebody, you lay hands on somebody, you lay hands, you lay hands, all of a sudden our multiplication is a lot more increased than what I can do by myself. That's kingdom. So I don't know what it looks like for you. Maybe you want to move to the back. Maybe you want to move the altar. Maybe you want to stand. Maybe you want to sit. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Some of you need to lay before the Lord. Some of you may just be like, that's it. He's done. I'm out of here. I'm checking out. Okay. I don't believe in forcing anybody to do anything. And I don't have to have you do anything to make me feel better. Holy Spirit is my comforter. I don't need you to comfort me. But I want you to be obedient to the Lord. So for the next little bit, and I will step away, but what I'm saying is, I want you to spend the next little however long, 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. And I just want you to sit and talk to God. I want you to ask Him to reveal to you where there might be lack, where there might be error, where there might be the need for increase, whatever the case may be. Now, some of you may never hear the Lord say anything to you in this moment. I'm going to give you a clue. That means you keep on pressing through. That's an old terminology that meant you prayed until you got through. But it's a great understanding that we keep pressing until we hear. So if you leave and you don't have anything, you keep pressing and you keep pressing and you keep pressing. You get in the word, you spend time in worship and you pray and you pray. And guess what? If the scripture says we have not because we ask not. And you're sitting there and you're pressing, you're pressing. Guess what's going to come? You're going to know the price to pay. So whatever you need to do, if you need to stand, you need to sit, you need to lay, you need to come to the altar, I don't care. For the next little bit, this is between you and God. You can play, whatever you want to do, or if you want to sing, whatever, it's all good. But everybody else, right now, spend time with the Lord. This has been a production of the Awakening Podcast Network. Jennifer LeClaire is the founder and owner of APN.